Hey guys, welcome to Fuck Small Talk. I'm your host, Mariah Joe, life and recovery coach. I have my master's in sociology and a few certifications in nutrition and behavioral health. I'm also a certified peer recovery specialist, which is a fancy way of saying I use my own experience with addiction and mental health to help others heal too. And I'm here to say fuck that, to fake fluffy talk for the sake of fitting in. You don't need to fit in, you belong. Let's dive into this week's big talk topic. Hi, Jana. How are you? Good. How are you, Mariah? I am doing so well. I'm so happy that you're here on the podcast today. You have written a book. We're going to get into some of the work that you've been doing, the healing work in your own personal life, but also how you are helping so many other people heal at the same time. I would love if you could just jump right in and explain a little bit about your story and why it is that you are. Um, an author and in the middle of the work of doing all of this inner child healing work. Um, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Yeah. So I'm going to be turning 58 years young this year. And okay. um, so I've been on this journey for a long time. I uh, grew up in the South in central Florida in the Bible belt. And I had two, you know, very emotionally unintelligent parents as most of us do, <laughs> you know, especially when they're having babies before your brains even developed. Yeah. So dad, his father immigrated from, from Ireland, a lot of alcoholism. His mother was native American and, you know, so alcoholism on both sides, grew up in a very violent household. My mom, on the other hand, kind of lived this idyllic life until her father died of a massive heart attack and she found him. And so, you know, both of their traumas, you know, we trauma bond, right? So my parents trauma bond on, they grew up together. My dad was there to support her through her father's death when she was only 12 years old. They get to high school, you know, they end up falling in love. And next thing you know, my brother comes, then I come pretty quick thereafter. And my dad just, you know, like most of us, until we wake up, we perpetuate that Inter, you know, intergenerational trauma, right? We just repeat what mom and dad did. And my parents did the same thing. My mom had mental illness. I think the the way my grandmother um, coped with her husband's death was very maladaptive for my mother and she didn't get the help she needed. Um, she was diagnosed with bipolar and put on lithium and given Valium. She was manic depressive is what they called it. And probably had borderline personality disorder that wasn't part of the DSM back then or, you know, the diagnostic. But she, you know, they were both, you know, very violent. I mean, dad beat mom and um, my mom put a gun to my head when I was eight. My brother and I later we found out she was in a blackout. She didn't remember any of that. But it was, you know, it was a really difficult childhood to endure. It was similar in adverse childhood experiences, there's 10 questions. And if the listeners want to look it up, it's just the ACE test. It's called yeah. adverse childhood experiences. And I scored 10 out of 10. I experienced, you know, neglect, abuse in every area, food deprivation. We were very poor. The town, you know, labeled us white trash because of course the police being called all the time and, you know, all the things that went on with all yeah, of it was that. tough. And I woke up at 12 
through a near-death experience. I call it a near-death experience. I'm not really sure. It was definitely a mystical experience. Um, I start the book out in the prologue with this experience. Dad's beating mom. My brother's not there to protect me. I'm praying to God to save me. And the next thing I know, I'm out of my body. I'm hovering way above. I could still see my body. I could hear my father and mother and the screams. And But I, I felt a peace. And I remember thinking, gosh, if I'm dead, like I'm good with this. This feels really good. You know, like I just, I no longer felt the fear and panic. I could still see myself wringing my hands, praying my little 12 year old self. And then I asked like, what's happening? And as soon as I asked the question, I was told, those are not your parents in a voice that wasn't audible, but it was like a knowingness, right? So I hear that. And then I hear that is not your life. And I kind of can see earth. It's almost like, and I look up and I'm like in the cosmos. I mean, it was like, I could have touched star galaxies and nebulas and, and I just felt, like I said, that peace. And then boom, I was back in my body but different. I didn't feel afraid anymore. Um, I talk about in the book, that was the moment when the inner dragon slayer was birthed within me. So my voice, I gave rise to my voice. I started standing up to these people who were tearing each other apart. And so I really woke up at a, to a higher level. I believe my soul's calling was to come here and endure a lot of that childhood so that I could help others. I started my healing journey at a very young age when people weren't talking about this at all in the eighties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, there wasn't social media and stuff. Oprah was about it. She would have guests on and um, yeah, I share about all of that in the book, kind of the journey out of that very turbulent childhood. Wow. And it's just you and your brother as kids. Yeah. Are you still close with your brother? Is he going through a similar? I am. I am. My brother endured more physical abuse than I did. My dad um, never hit me except for when I finally spoke out. He threw me across the room. But my brother had endured so much abuse at one point as an adult. He had a grapefruit sized tumor cut out of his leg from a belt beating from my dad. So my brother became a drug addict. He he hasn't been able to sustain relationships, healthy relationships. He doesn't do therapy. He he hides behind the Bible and you know, he just took a different path. I love him, but you know, we're at very different altitude, direction and speed, spiritually speaking. Yeah. That is something, you know, before we hit record explaining a little bit about my close relationship with my sisters, both. I mean, I'm a middle child. I'm a middle sister um, and it's just us three. And it's been one of the best blessings that could have absolutely come to me in my life is having to experience the childhood trauma. It's, it's crazy. I feel like I'm, I'm very aware again of my own experiences just through you telling your story really, really similar, you know, with my father being, I, there's no words really of explaining how violent and just how bizarre they became. it literally, like yeah. I call it the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, like effect yeah. because he wasn't always that right. monstrous, but when it came out, it was like, I mean, literally like we, it was very normal Evil. to think like we, we could maybe be dying tonight. Like yeah. it was 
Yeah. And being able to navigate through some of this healing work with my sisters by my sides is such a blessing. It's so cool to hear the choice that you made to like look into that vision that you had or the the inner knowing that was brought to you at such a young age. Did you start the work pretty early on? Well, so I'm 12 when that happened and um, I was being raised in the Baptist church and you know, so much we would kind of vacillate from Baptists. You know, my parents weren't typical churchgoers, but they would, you know, for a while. My dad was rarely home. He was usually gone, you know, womanizing or cheating on my mom or and my mom would attempt, you know, suicide and I would find her with her wrist slit. And mm-hmm. so I was being parent of, you know, I was the parent. Right. I was the youngest, but I was the parent to her and my brother often. And um, so spirituality, well, religion at first was very important to me because I would watch the adults, you know, praising and worshiping, and I would mimic what they were doing. But in my innocence, I would have these really profound experiences where I would get slain in the spirit, which means you, I don't know if you know that terminology, but In the South, there's a lot of like charismatic or Pentecostal type churches, you know, where speak in tongues and stuff. And so we would go to that kind of church and then we'd go to the boring Baptist church. (laughs) (laughs) Pentecostal was fun because I had a tambourine and I'd dance and Mm -hmm. praise. And and then I would get, you pass out, literally. It's like a, it's um, in India, they would call it Shakti pot. It's like all your chakras get like blown open. And so I would have these experiences of bliss and I would come out of it, you know, so I had a deep connection to spirit. So in hindsight, I would never change all the trauma because that's the gift it gave me was a a, a really strong connection to spiritual guidance yeah. and to the truth of who I am at 12 years old. So I go through high school. I stay stoned most of high school because that was the only way I could cope with my life was to disassociate and use cannabis to do that. And then by the time I, I make it to college, so I'm the first in my my family to, to finish high school, to get a, a, a high school diploma and then to go away to college. Wow. And so I'm breaking cycles, right? I'm very clear about where I'm headed in my future. And I know I'm not going to repeat what these people are doing. So that's really all I knew until I went away to South Florida. And then mentors and people would show up on my path. And by the time I was 20, I got a job with Maybelline and I was traveling around the country and I was in San Francisco and a book fell off. I was in an old bookstore. I talk about it in the book and it, a book fell off. It was called You. And um, I don't, it yeah. just fell, what do you mean? Just like fell off the shelf? It just fell off the shelf. It was <laughs> written in 1935 and it's out of print. It's very hard to get and they're very expensive, just tiny little book. And it, I opened it up and it talked about one of the chapters is the law of attraction. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. 1935. Um, <laughs> and it's talking about the most interesting subject in the world is to really know yourself. It's the most inspiring thing that you can do. So you have to recognize your real self as a spiritual being. So it was talking these concepts and my mind's getting blown, right? Like I'm like, whoa. And it's speaking to my soul. I can feel it. 
Then fast forward a couple of years after that, I have a child, very young, and it's a big wake up call. I don't want to repeat. Mm. You know, How old when, when you became a mom? I was um, 22 when I got pregnant, 23 when I gave birth. So I, um, I'm 22 and I'm like, okay, I'm pregnant. I got to get my shit together. You know, I cannot repeat what my mom, and by then I'm living, I was living with her father for about six months until she was born. And then I'm back with my mother. And so, you know, I'm feel like a complete failure and I've got to figure out what I've got to do to not repeat what they did for this child. And a series of events happen, you know, um, I, I, this book certainly got me on my path. Then Dr. Brian Weiss, who I trained with many lives, many masters. I read his book. That book changed my life because it gave me a simple reframe. Now in Christianity, we don't believe in reincarnation, right? right? But, and no one knows what happens after we die. So let's just establish that we're on a rock right now, spinning through space at 70,000 miles. You know, <laughs> we don't know much of what's going on. It's a big mystery. Mm-hmm. So I was open enough my mind to looking at something different because the people around me who believed these old beliefs weren't inspiring me. So the thought was this, Mariah, what if my soul chose those parents? Yeah, I've heard this before now. And if my soul chose those parents, then there's lessons according to reincarnation. And then I must be a pretty strong soul to have chose that. I must have like some destiny, some gift to give the world because I went through a lot. And if I can learn how to correct it and heal it and not perpetuate it, oh my gosh, what would be possible? Right. That changed my life. I began to view myself through the lens of like, I'm very powerful. <laughs> I'm a badass. Like, <laughs> I'm sure you would think the same thing. Like nobody would choose what I chose. But if I did, then, you know, what is the gift that I have to give the unique gift? And I love the what if questions that we get to ask ourselves around the the re- like around spirituality because it all is our own interpretation it is what we feel it's like uh you know people call them like you know we get downloads from like the universe or from source and it's just a feeling it's a knowing it's that intuition and i have been awake um spiritually and not even knowing that that's what that is you know especially as like a young kid and recognizing I I mean I was a child that asked why like 24 7 you know I'm just like I want to know more I'm curious by nature and so for me it was like questioning you know I grew up in in rural North Dakota to I mean my it was a very small town. And so, yes, the the Christian, I have like religious trauma. I have, I mean, my father was like a very outspokenly racist, sexist, you know, misogynistic. He, his mindset was just very kind of stuck in the way that he was raised and what he'd heard. So he just repeated whatever it was. And so that's where that emotional, unintelligent, or just like, just not a lot of experiences. Like you can't be what you can't see. And I know that that is true for, for, you know, how I was raised. It was very like, you know, I can't, I can't stay here. I can't stay in these, in this group of people and have this be just a repeat of what's going on around me. Cause none of this feels right. None of mm-hmm. it feels like me. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't feel like living. Yeah. I could remember as a child, like 
who are these people? Like they are, they don't, they, they just don't know they're unconscious. They, I was aware of that as a child. I had, as a child, did you ever think the thought, like have an awareness that even though you had it bad, that there were people in other parts of the world, or maybe even this country that had it even worse. And knowing that gave you a sense of relief. That It gave me I, relief. And it also was like, almost like guilt for saying that I had it bad. Like it was, uh, I remember being a young kid and seeing, you know, like commercials or like kids on TV mm-hmm. that were like, you know, like in Africa or yeah. Yes. Like donate your dollars. Like these children. Right. Were struggling. And I remember there were two like thought processes being like, well, what about like what I'm going through? <laughs> and also being like, what I'm going through must not be that bad. Like it must be okay because I, at least I have a roof over my head. And I know that like I can eat food out of the cupboard when I'm hungry. If like my parents are too drunk to make dinner or whatever it was, if they're not home, like at least I can find food, you know, so it kind of, it added to my confusion pretty early on. I I didn't view it through that. I just viewed it as a way to, to say, okay, you know, it could be worse. So, you know, pull your big girl panties up and, you know, buckle down and get through this. I didn't shame myself for thinking that I had it bad because I did. I think I minimized a lot of what was going on for me out of survival and writing the book certainly helped me realize that when I went into the studio to read it, that, oh my gosh, like it's different when you read your story, you know, and the story's written like a novel. So it's like, but going back to these I had a a shaman here in Santa Fe who I have a lot of respect for. He's in academia. He's published. He's, he's a brilliant man, American man, but he spends a lot of time down in the Amazon and um, he's in his seventies, late seventies. And he told me once that I was an old soul. I said, Oh yeah, I've, I've heard that before. And he goes, well, have you ever thought of, you know, why weren't you born in the Congo having your vulva cut out? You know, why do you, why don't you have a life expectancy living in Yemen of 38 years old as a woman? Yeah. I said, I had thought that when I was little. And he said, that's because you're not an infant soul. And I was like, oh, I've never heard infant soul. Have you? Mm-mm, no, like, and I wonder that too. Like, I wonder uh, like if I've been here before, if that must be deja vu <laughs> or like what it is, like, why do I feel like I've had this experience before? Like, why is this my life that I was like, planted in you know and I love I love this like you know I must have chosen this or like maybe I've already gone through certain experiences and now I'm here to experience this one yeah yeah and I mean that's why we you know we resonate as you know I I studied with Dr. Brian Weiss so I went on to study and become a hypnotherapist and a regressionist and I I don't use that work a lot in my private work because I think we have enough to deal with in this lifetime you know, then going phobias and things like that, uh, regression is good for. But going back to what the shaman told me, he said, infant souls are born in areas of survival. Infants can't survive on their own. So they require, you know, someone around them that's an older soul. And then when the soul keeps in the reincarnation journey going, it goes from infant then to baby. Now, babies by stranger danger, right? Babies are like, you know, afraid of people who are strange. They, they seek to make others like them. You know, they have to be told what to do. Don't run in the road. Don't touch it. It's hot. 
So according to this teaching that he was giving me, baby souls are very religious. So then I started to think, oh, my family of origin, I was born into a lot of baby souls. And I woke up out of that as a child at 12 years old. You know, I was told, no, no, that's not it. I went to the Baptist church and told them, God loves everybody. You don't have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. And then I was like, oh, and you know what? There is no heaven. It's within us. Even Jesus said that. So there was baby souls. There's infant souls, baby souls. Then you keep maturing, getting your lessons in life school. You go to young soul. Now in the U.S., young souls are you know, they are materialist. Young souls are consumers. Young souls want to look young, want to buy a lot of things. Mm. You know, America, Kim Kardashian, like all that young soul, young soul, right? Then young souls, like you, if you were friends with a young soul, you couldn't really have deep conversations because they're just, that's way over their head. You know, they're not interested. And then mature souls are relationship oriented. Now you can have deeper conversation with them because they're really interested in. So the soul keeps advancing, gets to mature soul. Then old souls are visionaries. So you're probably an early level old soul because you've got this podcast. You have a mission to want to share this work. That's very characteristic of an old soul. And old souls usually choose parents that are babies or young because they come in to be cycle breakers to help the family grow and evolve. But of course, everybody has free will and choice and not always, you're not a prophet in your own land, you know? That's crazy. So, I mean, like we have, it's so, it's so difficult for me to use the word choice because I have a history of addiction as well. And it's hard when we are grown up in the environment that we're in and we're um, by default kind of on this autopilot way of just like surviving, I guess. And it makes sense that when we are in pain, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, that we want to not feel that. And so it's really been interesting for me to ask myself, why it is that um, I guess I'm not sure if I chose then to spend a portion of my early years in addiction and to numb out. I know that you mentioned your use of cannabis and just being like high um, to kind of get through, to kind of just coast through, numb through a certain time Mm -hmm. in your life. And that is the language that I use when I talk about my recovery is that I and I've said it before on this podcast, I know it's controversial to say it, but also this is why we're on Fuck Small Talk to say, you know, the use of, and maybe in your case, the use of cannabis. I know for me, the use of alcohol and many other coping mechanisms. I mean, I've it, it was kind of everything. Mm-hmm. I needed to feel a little less intense in order to survive in certain seasons of my life. And I think once it was safe to let the alcohol go and to let the numbing go, then I was able to release that behavior. Um, But up until like getting professional help on what that felt like to release the thing that in my opinion, like I felt like truly it was like a shield and a sword. Like it was like saving my life. Mm-hmm. to hold on to those coping mechanisms. And I guess that's my question for you is why do you, in in your opinion, what do you think made you stop numbing? 
and start to look like in the mirror at your shadow self or um, at your inner child and start to heal through some of this instead of recognizing that it felt better to not <laughs> to like numb. So, so the question, you know, everything that we experience is through contrast. So if you don't have a contrasting experience, you won't know the opposite. So if I asked you, how do you know it's daylight right now? What's your answer? Because it's not dark. Right. So we know daylight because we've experienced darkness. Right. Okay. If we never experienced darkness, we probably would not even have a word for daylight. Right. We wouldn't know. Why, why would we need it? Why would we? Right. So your drinking was probably a way, you know, because the soul, which it to me is the core essence, that is our, that's our purity, our innocence. It's the part of us that comes into the each lifetime and says, you know, I have a unique gift to give this world. But according to reincarnation, you bring in seeds of karma. Karma means action from previous incarnations that has to be cor corrected. So it's like the universe has a correct accounting system. There's debits and credits. So each soul comes in with some debits and some credits. Well, I had a lot of debits and I chose to pay them at a, a very early age so I could get busy about doing the work I'm here to do. Same thing for you. For a while, you used coping mechanisms to manage it because as a human, because we're both we're divine and we're human, right? Yes. So we are spiritual beings having a human experience. So your humanity was was trumping your soul, yeah. right? You were too identified with, this is my story. You know, I have reasons I need to drink. You know, I have, and you needed that contrast to wake you up. Yeah, so it's like- soul slap you. <laughs> yeah, and I say that a lot. Like if I haven't have had that experience in my life, then I wouldn't be doing this work. Yeah. Right. So it again is the gift. So you don't want to demonize yourself or judge yourself for being, you know, um, an addict at one time, you know, like depending on something for being weak and looking outside of yourself to anesthetize and to numb, I mean, to fill a, a void and a hole inside. It's just what we do. But then at some point that becomes so excruciating, painful, and we create so much chaos that you know, we have to, we're at a choice point again, I've got to get help. I've got to, oh, and then you start waking up out of that. But ha if you don't let yourself to the depth of your misery is the height of your ecstasy. If you aren't courageous enough to go deep into the darkest places, then you're not going to experience the opposite. Uh, William right. James, the poet, he said, there's two kinds of people in the world, once born and twice born. And he said, once borns go through life and they do, they stick to the familiar, you know, they, they don't change. They, they kind of repeat what mom and dad did. They do what society expects of them. They're conform, they're vanillas, let's say, you know, like, it's yeah, like not much. a flatline normie. <laughs> yeah. And then the soul keeps poking its head through crisis and calamity and through, but, you know, you know, men, my life out of a half lived life, but the once born person is afraid of change. They're afraid of the unknown. And let's face it. That's what everybody's afraid of. You know, they want to control things and keep it familiar, which mm -hmm. comes from the word family. And so we keep, you know, and so then the twice born though uses addiction, calamity, 
you know, a broken childhood, trauma, rape, all kinds of things to wake up. They use it to step into the unknown. They use it to let the old self die so the new self can be born. This is such an enlightening conversation. I have gone through so much in my recovery in the last four years that I've done some inner healing work with shadow work and the inner child healing that obviously your book is geared uh, around, you know, like it's focusing on. But I have kind of hit walls in my recovery where the first two years, it felt like I was really going like up, like uh, on an upward trajectory and it felt like healing. And then life happens, right? In in recovery, we say like life happens on life's terms, Right. Some some shit went down and I felt I felt like it shook me Mm -hmm. and lost a lot of that forward momentum and confidence that I had in my ability to heal and pull myself back to my spiritual center because of all of these new traumas that came up or maybe old traumas that resurfaced. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for someone that like maybe has started a healing journey and they had this momentum going and then something happened where maybe they took a tumble, they took a spiritual fall, or or maybe it's just kind of like it fizzled out um, or something. And now they found themselves in a situation where they're like, well, I knew I know this work. I know what I have to do. I'm just not doing it. Or I used to feel stronger in my in my in my healing than I feel right now. And maybe mm-hmm. um, like my little sister this morning said that she said it's frustrating because I feel like I was I was doing really well. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like like I'm kind of still stuck in this rut again. Mm -hmm. So growth looks like this. It's a spiral, right? So you wake up here, you start going, oh, everything's great. Yeah, it's awesome. Oh, back here. So you're talking about being back here. And then you identify, oh gosh, why am I back here? Things feel stuck. Things feel, because life is always pushing for growth, for greater evolution, greater expansion. That's happening in the macrocosm. You know, if we look, I think it was in 2014, three physicists were given the Nobel Prize for discovering the expansion of the universe. So everything's always expanding. If it's not growing, the opposite would be entropy, decay, death. You know, you see a body of water. If there's no movement in it, it gets stinky and stagnant. Nothing can grow in it. So we've got to always be going to our next level. So the universe spirit, whatever you call it, source is always going to be pushing us. You know, that's like what makes a diamond is pressure. So if we're not creating it for ourselves, some calamity, some external force is going to come to wake us up again. Right. And we've got to accept that is life. So either you're going to be when you're here, you've got to be in acceptance. Okay. What I did when I was down here isn't going to work here. Oh my gosh. Okay. So this spiral reminds me of like a spiral staircase. And when yeah. you're on like the bottom rung, it's your first steps. And yes. you've never been on that step before on that rung. But as you twirl up the staircase, you know, maybe you hit a block and it feels really familiar. You feel really stuck. Like you've definitely been in this position before. And instead of getting angry with yourself or irritated that you have experienced this in your healing journey so far. And here you are back again. Like I thought that I already went through this work. Actually, what's happening is that, of course, you're not the same you that you were Mm -hmm. maybe a year ago or something when you experienced this for the first time. You are now a year wiser, a year Mm -hmm. more grown, a year more, um, you know, in tune. And you are on maybe the like 
second rung or third rung. And of course, now you have come back around. Is that what you're saying? You just, well, we spiral higher. So each time we go up, now we're here again. You know, we go, we're up here. Then we go back down again. And so every time where we're where we're coming, because there's seasons of life, right? We we keep, we have to have these contrasting experiences to push us. Most people feel like, what am I doing wrong? No, that's just life. It's pushing you to go higher and higher and higher. And what ends up happening is, you know, what worked for you in the beginning of your journey doesn't work for you because you're a different person. And we are in earth school. So you're going to be getting lesson after lesson after <laughs> lesson. So who you were a year ago, the universe is like, okay, let's test her. She dated a guy like that. And he had these qualities. Oh, he comes in a new form, a new body now. And now it's very familiar. And you're starting to see the signs. And it's testing. Are you going to advocate for yourself, value yourself, set boundaries, not allow this man to ghost you, talk to you that way, whatever, using that as an example. So you're always going to get tested as you keep spiraling higher. Otherwise, you would, you know, we we have to bless the test, right? Because they're going to come. Test or, you know, the universe is always going to be testing us to see if we got the lesson because that's what we're here to do. We're in school. If I'm working with someone and they say I have suicide ideation and then I'll say, okay, now I'm not a traditional therapist. You need to call 911 and, you know, get help. But I will say this to you. Um, that is a choice you can make, but you can't skip school. You're going to have to repeat. So go ahead, commit suicide. You're just going to have to come back and repeat it all because you didn't get the lesson. Because we're here to live and learn our lessons and grow and, you know, wanting to annihilate ourselves and kill ourselves is not going to end the pain and suffering we're feeling. Very right? similar to those of us that are um, maybe never get out of that addiction cycle where you are, where maybe we're born into the dysfunction and we don't um, advocate for ourselves or, and, and this is where like the language gets a little sticky for me because I recognize how freaking painful and seemingly impossible it is to get out of that cycle. Um, so it's, I make it, I, I get nervous to call it a choice to stay in addiction because I think sometimes our human experience is so strong, especially when we don't have the right support or the right guides or like books falling off. Or tools. It comes down to tools. Yeah, exactly. Or like whether we are so stuck in that addiction or the, the um, negative headspace or whatever it is that we can't, we can't open our spiritual eyes enough to even recognize when tools and guides are right in front of us. Um, well, because think about the addict's mind, you know, the neuroplastic, I mean, all the things that are happening in the frontal lobe, the, you know, whether it's alcohol or pills or whatever it is, they aren't coherent. You can't heal from a non an incoherent state of mind. Right. You have to get coherency before you can begin to heal. And so, you know, that's why we say we got to hit rock bottom, right? right. You got to get hit rock bottom before you can and I mean, luckily, you know, that was just during my high school years. I mean, that's kind of typical in high school, right? You smoke some weed and mm-hmm. you check out. By the time I had my daughter, I was very coherent. I was very on a path of metaphysics, of learning about, you know, past lives, of learning, you know, a lot of esoteric teachings, really opening my mind. Um, the mind's like a parachute, right? It only works when it's open. Mm-hmm. 
that by the time I'm in my 30s, I think I've pretty much, you know, I've been a student of Deepak Chopra's learning quantum physics and a lot of Vedanta and non-dualism. And then all of a sudden I hear Debbie Ford speak and she's talking about shadow work and she was an addict and she, um, you know, had been in and out of rehab multiple times. She comes out on stage and she says, hi, I'm Debbie Ford and I'm a bitch. Now I grew up in a very violent household and had to learn how to fight in a small town. You might've experienced that in a girl's fighting and all of that. I grew up, you know, with that type of mentality and I had a lot of anger, a lot. I mean, I, um, you know, was angry a lot and didn't know how to manage the anger. So I of course felt like a bitch, but I was trying to be spiritual and put ice cream on my poop and not let anybody know. Right. Like, <laughs> Oh, I'm so spiritual, you know, and just bypass that. And, but then it would show up with my daughter, you know, I would yell at her and scream or, you know, my husband, I was just, you know, unhappy within myself. I did not know how to process all that trauma from childhood. And so here I am my late twenties, thirties, I meet Debbie Ford. I drink the Kool-Aid. I mean, it was the teachings to me that my soul was ready for, because I thought if I can make peace with you know, the parts of myself I was trying to get rid of, frankly, I didn't want to be a bitch. I wanted to be sweet and loving and kind all the time. And I didn't realize that was impossible. And I needed that little bitchy girl to protect me. She, that's how she got formed to advocate for herself and protect herself from these crazy people, you know, where she grew up. So um, shadow work changed my life and, you know, learning to love and and accept the little part of me, not the totality. You know, it's like in psychosynthesis, there's us, right? It's like a big circle. So there's us. And then we shoot out all these parts of ourselves. My pen's not working. We have like, think about like a big pizza pie. Yes. So we have all these parts, right? And these parts are light and dark. So they over here, I have bitch. And then I have over here, kind and loving. And I didn't realize that, oh, you can't have one without the other, like light and dark, like sunshine and nighttime. Yes. Right. And so once I started to understand psychosynthesis and that, oh, yeah, sometimes is the key word, right? Given a certain situation or whatever, I'm going to show up very loving and heart-centered. And sometimes I'm going to show up pretty fierce and intense and strong. And so, you know, shadow work changed my life and helped me make peace with the parts of myself I was at war with. What would you say to somebody who maybe is a little nervous or scared? Um, Or I think sometimes we like discount the inner healing work, like, ah, like, I don't need that. Or that's all woo woo. Or like, I've heard many things like that in my healing journey and in my life, Um, particularly from people who it's very clear that they're unhealed. Um, But what would you say to somebody that like might want to do this work and who's intrigued, but has a lot of fear of like what they might find if they start to do the work? I mean, again, the mind, you know, only works if it's open. So if somebody was already projecting something as woo-woo or, you know, they're not ready. Mm -hmm. So, you know, life will have to come and knock them on their ass before they wake up, you know, because you either get to a point where you humble yourself enough to go, you know, what I'm doing isn't working, the definition of insanity, expecting different results and doing the same thing. 
or you're ready. So I don't, I'm pretty selective in who I work with, you know, and especially in private work. So, but what I would say to somebody who's scared is that's normal. It's the unknown. Like you've lived your whole life in the known, which is the prison. That's the past. It's over. That's all, you know. And so I'm inviting you to step into the present moment and create a future that's unknown to you. You don't, you have to become someone different to live the future you want. And that means there's a death. So it's that, you know, metaphorical death and rebirth. I'm asking you to die to your old self to be reborn. And birth is painful if, you know, I've had a child. It's not an easy process. And, you know, giving birth to the new you takes discipline. And let's face it, a lot of people don't have it. Mm -hmm. They, you know, it takes waking up every morning. First thing I do is meditate. You know, it's the most important thing because I'm starting my day out with a clean slate, right? I'm connecting to spirit. I'm clearing my mind. I'm connecting to my inner child, AKA my, my emotional self, my little girl. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, all of that takes discipline, it takes discipline to eat healthy, but all of that comes from a person who loves and values themselves. So at the root cause, Mariah, the question of why aren't, you know, why wouldn't someone go on a healing journey is because they're operating from a, think about it like a computer. They're operating from an operating system of something, a false belief, a false narrative that they picked up under the age of seven in their developmental years of I'm not good enough, I'm unlovable, I'm not worthy. So if they didn't get they were worthy from their parents, then they adopted that belief. And now to to get up, to meditate, to eat well, to exercise, I mean, you got to feel worthy to do those things. Mm-hmm. You got to feel good enough about yourself to take care of yourself. All of those actions are, are self-love. Yes. And I'll, I've noticed that, you know, through private clients or, um, you know, 12 step meetings or just my own healing uh, myself, you know, cause I'm a human and I definitely run into this from time to time. But when someone is like a victim mentality, you know, of like, well, they didn't do this or, well, I grew up like this or I just didn't have X, Y, Z. That is someone's way of saying, um, I'm going to lay this on someone else or some other thing outside of myself to make sure that you understand that that is responsible for the way that my life is going instead of like taking accountability and saying like, actually, I have the choice to choose differently and to think differently and to feel differently. Like it doesn't have to be an autopilot thing for the rest of our life. Right. You've, you've mentioned two of the four ways we orphan or abandon our inner child. So when I say orphan and abandon, it means, so we were born those first seven years, we develop ourselves looking at parents, it's conditioning, right? Mm -hmm. How they treated us, how they treated each other. Then then we pick up where they leave off and we begin to treat ourselves the way that they model how they treat themselves, how they treat us. So what happens is we don't listen to our feelings. We numb them. That's one way you've already said addictions. Now, addictions can also be to positive things. I know people who are addicted to exercise, running and Mm -hmm. anything you're doing that is help is um, bypassing a feeling could be an addiction. Okay. So addictions are one way. The other way is blaming others. 
You just pointed that out. That's that's not us not taking responsibility that other people can't are not responsible for our feelings, period. They're not. As an adult, other people, we're helpless over them, right? We're irresponsible over them. They can say and do and act however they want. And, you know, and they can hurt us. They can, you know, heartbreak. But if we tell ourselves a story, we create suffering for ourselves. And then we blame others for it. Oh, they made me feel. So blaming is victimization. So that's a way we abandon. And then the other two ways is staying in our head. This is the number one way most people abandon themselves by getting in their head, analyzing our feelings live where? Not in our head, in our body. Oh, yeah. And so felt sense in the body. You got to feel the heart, the soma, right? That's why we have a lot of you know, somatic practices where we're feeling the feelings and the trauma, the body keeps the score. So everything that happens to us, the body has, you know, the memory. cells have memory and they hold it. So that's number one, stay in your head. Number two is judge yourself and push yourself harshly. So somewhere when you're young, you get an idea that if I just work hard, try hard, like really become the best, a perfectionist, like, you know, be really intense. That's what I did. And, um, and I still, that's my number one abandonment mechanism because we never get to a place where, oh, I'm healed. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe for a split second, we feel good about it. (laughs) And it's the higher spiral, right? It's you'll get to a good place and then something, cause life, like you said, happens. And then you're all of a sudden back in another lesson. Did you get the lesson or let's repeat it? You know, oh, you're, you're right back at it again. So you can't solve a problem from the level the problem was created, Einstein said. So when you're in that spiral we were talking about and you feel stuck, the old ways of getting yourself unstuck aren't going to work. You need to find a new teacher, new teaching, new way of being, right? So you don't abandon yourself those four ways. Yes. I mean, and we see this in every other form. Like this is, there's so many instances that you can look at on planet Earth while we're in Earth school that this is true. And one of the big ways that I started to practice recovery and get to know my body instead of abandon it, because I, I have a history of suicidal ideation. And with addiction, it was just like, it was overeating. I let I would just, you know, allow men to treat my body however they would like, you know, it was very, or I would be its own abuser because I would, I would use it to get what I wanted. Mm. Um, And so it's just like so many different instances in my life where I was abandoning my body specifically and just not wanting to be present with it. When I ingest something and I leave my body mentally, it Mm. still stays and it experiences everything. And so one of the, one of the ways that I really took hold of that really early on in recovery is to start to work with physical fitness and start to move my body like it was I was working with my body as a team to gain strength and that's something that like anybody that has ever seen anything with fitness knows that like you can't walk into the gym on your first day and bench press 200 pounds without injuring yourself or successfully And it's also recognizing that like in a year, maybe you work out consistently for a year and that's amazing discipline. In one year, you're going to catch yourself plateauing and wondering why you're so frustrated that you aren't Mm -hmm. leveling up in the way that you can lift heavier or do more or have more endurance because you need more contrast. You need to switch it up and um, struggle more in order to gain more. And that's That's a great parallel. 
I love that. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but you're absolutely right because you do hit plateaus and then the body memorized, oh, this is what you do and you've done it consistently and nothing's happening. So yeah. now you got to change it up. Like you well, said, it's not like it's unhealthy and that you are um, like stagnant and dying. If you go to the gym consistently and do the same routine for the rest of your life, that right. is still healthy. That is still beautiful yeah. that you're moving your body like that. If you do want to grow, mm-hmm. you're going to have to do something a little Different. more yeah. as time goes yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. Different. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I am a metaphor um, queen. <laughs> it's like what helps me learn. And so that's how I, how I like to teach as well. Um, yeah. I have a, I have a question just again, my little sister and I were talking about how I was interviewing you. She's like already a huge fan of your book and um, we're really excited to read into your book, but we want to know about this concept of forgiveness. And I have a sense just with like the spiritual um, conversation that we've been having where you may stand with the concept of forgiveness and the spiritual principle of forgiving. But in my sister group, my older sister, me and my little sister, we have conflicting views on whether forgiveness is necessary or if it's always possible, you know, like, is it do we need to forgive someone who has harmed us or abused us, or maybe they're not actively even thinking that they should or can heal? Maybe they just never will. Is it our responsibility to forgive somebody who isn't doing the work to change? Yeah. So um, a few things on forgiveness. First of all, we forgive for ourselves, not for the other person has nothing to do with the other person, actually. <laughs> doesn't mean you're going to go break bread with them and have a relationship with them. So Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the who really led the South Africans out of apartheid from destroying their country and retribution, and he said, always forgive, never forget. And we're taught forgive and forget. And the reason why we don't want to forget is because we'll repeat it. And so we have to get the lessons. So someone, you know, trespasses against us, someone harms us, someone does something. And depending on the level of it, right, let's on an arbitrary scale of one to 10, you know, just say 10 is like, you'll never have a relationship. Let's say if it's from seven to 10, it's probably I'm going to forgive you for me because it's like eating poison and expecting you to die if I don't. So, you know, I'm going to do the work on forgiveness and, and letting you go. And the way we do that is we get the lesson. So in correcting karma, we accept that, okay, maybe somewhere I had a debt to this person or something, maybe not even to that person. Maybe that's just the way I got, I'm getting, having to pay the debt, right? Is through what they did to me. So like I was raped in college. Well, I don't even remember that person's face or name or anything about him, but you know, let's say I had a debt to him. So the the question would be, okay, what is the lesson in that? Well, I the lesson was I wasn't valuing myself. Of course, that was always an overarching lesson in my entire life, right? So how can I forgive myself for not valuing myself and putting myself in situations where something like that could happen, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I was a kid, so it's hard to say, you know, I was definitely a victim at that time. But unless I want to remain a victim, I look back at the past when I was younger and things that happened and and say, you know, what is the lesson? When you get a lesson, then forgiveness comes easy. 
it's, you know, you can let something go, but, but for, you know, you know, and Ho'oponopono in the tradition of the Huna in Hawaii, the Polynesian, they have, it's called Ho'oponopono. There's four lines. I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. And this frequency of forgiveness is very high. We never, ever, Mariah, want to look at our past and say it should have been different. Yeah. Right. We accept that it has happened. Not that it was okay that I was raped and abused and all the things that happened to me, molested as a child, all of that wasn't okay. But I have to accept that it has happened. And now what am I going to do today to make sure it never happens again? And that I can, you know, I forgave my dad, you know, he sexually abused me. I forgave him. I didn't want to hold that forever. You know, like I, it didn't mean I had a relationship with him. The last conversation I had with him, I said, I'll speak to your sponsor. And if you're working the program, then I'll, you can come here and I'll see you. And he said, you know what, when I die, don't come to my funeral. And he hung up and a year later he was dead. So but I, I wrote a letter of forgiveness. I put it in the coffin with him, you know, that he had molested me, that he had abused me, that he did neglected me. He wasn't there for me. But there was some soul contract with my dad. And like you said, your dad wasn't always a monster. Neither was mine. And so I held on to the goodness. Mm-hmm. But, but I didn't mean I wanted a relationship with him. Right. Yeah. So forgiveness, I think, comes naturally when you can see the lesson and the gift. And then, you know, but like it, you know, and there's variations, right? Degrees of forgiveness, like of if someone does something and I say, listen, when you treat me that way, I have a boundary that doesn't work for me. That's unacceptable. And so, you know, just in the future, I can't control you, but just know that if you talk to me that way, I'm going to hang up on you or I'm going to limit how much I, t-. and if they do it again, after I've told them, then usually I start to pull back. I forgive them, you know, hurting people, hurt people. Yeah. It's about them, not about me. So I let it go, but, you know, I don't repeat it. I don't stay in the relationship. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, and this is where, so I, out of my sisters, I've gone through the 12 steps and I've done a lot of the um, spiritual work that comes along with a 12 step program, whichever one um, that people may have experience with or not, but it was so healing and beautiful. And I think it wasn't just me working the 12 steps with a sponsor, but it was sitting in several, several, several meetings and listening to men work on their recovery and their mm-hmm. healing journey with their kids, recognizing my dad and every single man whose story resonated with me and understanding that if my father does any work and has a future that is geared towards healing instead of continuing to do more harm unconsciously that he could absolutely be somebody sitting in a chair in one of the meetings and and healing and growing too and so like I recognize that that like there's place um for you know if he were to be expansive spiritually in that way like maybe we could have a discussion someday and I think that that's where my forgiveness my ability to forgive looks much different than really any a lot of other people either in my family or just like when I hear other people talk about their abusers or wrongs that have been done to them through other unhealed people 
I, I completely relate to what you were saying about forgiveness. Yeah, and that's a good point. They're unhealed. And as you meet yourself in your own healing journey, you'll have compassion for people because you'll see yourself or like you did in the other men, their stories of their disconnect and how they treated their children. And, and then you have compassion for the inner child in your father that's been abandoned, been, you know, that he abandoned, that clearly he experienced traumas as a child. And so, you know, that's, that's what this work leads us to compassion for ourselves, forgiveness for ourselves, that we allowed ourselves to be in situations that we also, you know, hurt others and did things when we were hurting, you know, forgiveness comes naturally. If you can look, always take responsibility, number one, that this is happening for me, not to me. And what is the lesson? Like I'm going through a situation right now with a family member, someone very close. And I I live by the adage that, you know, it's okay to divorce your family. Like if, if you're in a relationship with a family member, I don't care who they are, a spouse, a sister, a brother, a parent, a sibling, a child, or what, you know, if they're, if they're not meeting themselves and doing the work and they're lashing out and being abusive, you know, then you might have to pull back from that relationship, right? It, there's nothing that it says you have to be in relationship with your family. And yeah. I end relationship with a lot of my family because of that. And that's with any person on planet Earth, whether it's family or not, doesn't matter what they've done for you, how, like all of the because that was used against us as kids too. after all I've done for you, for you. Yeah. you know, and it's like, no, nope. like, no, like that wasn't a deal. Like, yeah. you don't get to treat me however you want because of what you give or what yeah. you think you've given. Exactly. Yeah. I've been wanting to read this quote. It talks about choosing familiarity. And if you are, if you have like an emotionally unavailable caregiver, you're more likely to choose emotionally unavailable partners. And Mm -hmm. it's just like what we see is what we become. You know, what we experience is just kind of like without the conscious choosing of something different, we can Mm -hmm. fall into a pattern and into a behavior. And I just find that really interesting. I'm processing through uh, a breakup right now and consciously being woken up now. It's been a couple of weeks and uh, it's so hard to not be down on myself and to not be upset. And so I've Mm -hmm. been really dancing in between going like, Mariah, you knew better, you know better. Like this person, if you were to take like bullet points and see like what you needed emotionally and spiritually from a partner does this person fit that mold? And and the reality is, is like, no. And so I've asked myself, like, why is it that I've stayed in this, in this situation? And, um, you know, we, we just moved in together six months ago as an attempt to try to like make it work. You know what I mean? And I know that that's so common, but realizing that I was doing that, I was pouring more and more into the situation that like was never going to work. And someone that wasn't matching me and wasn't a a spiritual connective source for me. It's so hard. I feel like I'm going through some shame and some guilt. And um, I do both. You know, I'm like stuck in that. Like, well, I I chose this. This is my, I knew better, you know, because I, I did. But also I didn't. And I was leaning into what felt good in the moment. And, you know, what was given instead of what was missing. And I just really wanted to focus on that and like feel good in the moment. And I guess that that's where like, I'm wondering, 
how to tap back into self-compassion when you feel yourself kind of regressing or you feel yourself like, well, I chose to, I chose to stay in this. So again, it's not that you're regressing, Mariah, it's that Mm -hmm. cyclical, you know, you're just in another, so everything's coming to happen for you, to teach you, to gain clarity on what you really want in your own self, how you're showing up. And the mirror of relationship is the spiritual path. You know, when we're in relationship, they mirror to us ourselves. So if he was emotionally, um, let's say, I don't know the situation, like un- but unavailable, yeah. emotionally unavailable. What is that mirroring to you? You're emotionally unavailable. Guess who too? your inner child. Mm-hmm. You're not listening to your emotions that were talking to you. She was trying to tell you, this doesn't feel good. I don't like this. I deserve better. And you were like, shh, shh, shh. I don't want to hear it. You know, like, but he does this, let's focus on the good. And you kept shutting her down until, you know, something happens and she's screaming and you can't shut her down anymore. So you've got to lean in and listen to little Mariah and say, okay, you know, and shame is telling her she's a bad girl. I am bad. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad. So, you know, when we get to the root of shame, what we see in a shame-based personality is someone you know, like my core operating system, you know, was I'm bad. So if I put software and I had got a boyfriend that thought I was so good and I was an angel, like my husband calls me now for a long time, I could have never been with a man like him. I would have been like, oh, gross. Like, okay, you're too nice. Stop. Like, be mean to me. Like I am. Be familiar. It's familiar. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you start vibrating and then you see, oh, he's showing me emotionally unavailable. Oh, I get it. I still got to work on being emotionally available to little Mariah. Then an emotionally available man will show up and you'll be comfortable with it because it'll match that inner frequency that you have of being connected to your emotions, you know, and it mm-hmm. won't feel unfamiliar because you'll have done it enough and visualized yourself in a relationship with a man who, you know, d- can modulate his feelings, can regulate his emotions, can ca- talk to you about his feelings, doesn't retreat and go in his man cave and do all of that, right? Because you're able to do it. So to the degree you're meeting yourself, you're going to attract somebody meeting them themselves. And like you said, you live in an area of the country where you know, there's maybe not a lot of people on a conscious journey. It's new. Yeah. And so we already have an advantage as women that we're more connected in that way than men. Men are conditioned as children in society to suppress emotion, right? So you, it's, in other words, it's a little hard to find, you know, to attract men that are real conscious, right? You know, it's, it's, you know, we're adding another thing to the do want list of a relationship, you know, where men on the, on average, right? Like when I did my desire statement and I share it in wise little one, because the book's really a love story of me learning how to love and value myself, overcoming the trauma so that I could get to in a place where I could attract a man, a, a spectacular superior man who could mirror me back to myself of the worth and the love that I was giving to myself. Right. And so I met him on a plane that I wasn't supposed to be on. Spirit guided me. I got on this plane. I left a retreat I was at and I sat next to him and the rest is history. (laughs) And, you know, I was 49 years old when that happened. And 
I had gotten really clear and scripted out my ideal relationship, you know, and, and, and I mean, I attracted it. So I was already living. Joe Dispenza talks about this. I was living in a future potential before it happened so that when it happened, it was very familiar. Yeah. You were ready for it. It was yeah. just kind of, I was like, oh yeah, there you are. Great. I would spend my evenings at home and make dinner and imagine him kissing my neck and telling me he loves me and how beautiful I am. And when he showed up and he, he naturally did all those things without me saying anything, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this feels good. Yeah. This is what I imagined. That's so beautiful. But I think like, that's where I kind of in this new, I mean, I'm still, I'm, I'm in the closet of this house that I'm moving out of in a week. You know, it's, I feel very stuck in between. It's been hard to not feel like I'm in spiritual limbo here or in like healing limbo, but it's been really difficult to be, realize that my grief is valid. My feeling is, my feelings are valid on how I'm feeling, removing myself from this relationship and moving forward with myself. Um, without him. And that has been, it's so painful. Like the, it's the children abandonment uh, wound, you know, that is definitely coming through. And I'm recognizing a lot of unhealed patterns and behaviors and thoughts that are kicked back up through this breakup. But I like, there's no place for shame in it. There's no place for feeling like I did something wrong by, by either choosing this relationship or staying in this relationship because apparently my spirit needed every lesson that I needed to hear from him. And I can begin the contrast. Yes. And I've started to do a lot more like in the last week or two, um, as the healing has gone on since that initial breakup conversation, I like feel my heart emulating this compassion for him and recognizing almost feeling that's where that guilt comes in, like recognizing that like, I've kind of um, I feel like I've taken him hostage for like a year or two trying to like control how he is, how he does things, how he shows up for me. But was that your intent? No, not at all. Okay, So you got to go back to your intent. Intentions are the most important thing in our life because, you know, they have infinite organizing power. So when we set our intent to do something and someone else takes it in a different way because we're helpless over how they receive it and we're powerless over that we're helpless over that so if your intent was only to support him to grow and heal and y'all do this work together and you have this beautiful relationship that was your intent yes the way he received it might have been different the way it may came across sometimes from your wounded little girl might have not been the greatest but overall the intent was good and you've got to recognize who are you inside to know that your intent is good you don't wish anyone harm or ill will or anything you only want the best but you're just irresponsible so when we grow up in trauma and you know dysfunctional families we develop these adaptations right or we create you know i cleaned i talk a lot about it wise little one i'd clean and you know try to make order out of disorder and you know And, but as I grew, that became, you know, a control, you know, I'd tell people how they should behave and, you know, I'd point out things and I began to become very manipulative and controlling around people around me because the wounded little girl was trying to seek to feel safe. I feel unsafe. You know, that was my core thing my whole life. You too. I didn't feel safe. And so what I had to learn is 
you know, safety comes from inside. You can't find it from the outer world or a relationship. So even though I'm in a very healthy, functioning, loving relationship with my husband, he he can't walk this path for me. So, you know, he can't feel my feelings. He can't, you know, so it's a very interesting when you're in a healthy relationship, it's almost like, you know, two pillars of a temple. You know, they they're holding the temple up, but they're not right together. They have to have space, right? And so I'm very much responsible for me. He's very much responsible for himself. And, and you know, it it feels in a lot of ways, you know, as an adult, I just want to say this because you mentioned abandonment, that coming up again, we can't be abandoned. If you're handicapped, if you're old, you know, if you're a child, yes, you can be abandoned. But once we're an adult, when we feel abandoned by others, it's just... The mirror, again, in Sanskrit, it's called Tatvamasi. I see in the other, you know, myself and myself in the in the other. They're mirroring back. So you're just, you're feeling abandoned because you're abandoning little Mariah. And that's what I got was I stayed in a marriage for, you know, 20 years, abandoning myself, being a caretaker. Oh, he's a good person. And what's he going to do if I leave him? His life's going to fall apart. And it pretty much has, but that's not my responsibility. And it certainly wasn't my intent. I wanted to make the marriage work, but he was an alcoholic. I can't, you can't be healthy with an unhealthy person. You can't stand strong with another person leaning on you. And then they make you weak. You're right. You feel like yeah. it's your fault if they fall when you move away. Like it's, yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's codependency been, 101. Yep. And this has been so healing. I've been, um, I just picked up Melody Beattie's Codependent No More book. Um, I started to do that work in my early recovery and go figure it was overwhelming and I didn't want to get into it, but I think that this is the right season. And um, spiritually, I just have this knowing that every person that has come into my life, this re most recent partner of mine in particular to help me get even more in tune with who I am and what I need, what I really do need. So you can help others. So look at every one of these experiences as you've contracted with these souls to keep gaining wisdom and wisdom comes through experience, right? You've got to put yourself out in the game. I was working with a client recently and she is, you know, going, I think they're divorced. Maybe it hasn't been signed yet, but they're for, and she's fine. Recently, he came over. Somehow they ended up having sex. She was like, how did I do this? Why did I do this? And I'm like, because you're courageous. She's like, what? I'm like, yeah, you're courageous. You threw yourself back into the fire. You know, you're you're still cooking. You're still molding. Who am I? D did I want to go back with him? I don't know. Like you had to go to the ugliness again to get really clear. Oh, yeah, I don't want that. Right. Don't beat yourself up for it. You're yeah. courageous. You're not sitting on the sideline of life. You're out in the field playing it. There's like you know, no acknowledge yourself, Mariah, that you're doing that and you're doing it because you have a big mission. You know, I relate with people. I'm almost 60 years old. Every client, whether they are a doctor you know, somebody in highly educated to just a lay person, I can relate to everybody because I have played the game of life. Yeah. There's pretty much nothing I can't relate to. <laughs> that is like, it's through the courage of like going into the unknown since you were a little girl and even just like asking why, you know, I feel like, yeah. I, like why, 
that question is a courageous question. Like your alcoholism that, and you could view that through the lens, you know, of course, a miracle says a miracle is a shift in perception. You could perceive that as, damn, I was courageous. I went to the depths of hell so I could feel what it feels like, you know, so that maybe one day I can, you know, I, I'm not a big, I went through 12 steps, you know, NA, all and on, uh, adult children of alcoholics, all of that to understand it. I didn't stay in it long because I don't like story. The brain doesn't know the difference between story and reality. So when you keep saying, I am an addict, I am this, telling the story, it keeps you stuck in the past. This is also why I've been pulling away from the narrative of the 12 steps. I, I went through the 12 steps. I think it served a purpose. And I'm so Absolutely. grateful that I did it in the early stages of my recovery. And since the early stages, I've been like, it feels a little bit, um, it feels much actually much bigger than mm -hmm. um, what I'm able to really tap into here. And mm -hmm. so this is where I've done a lot of spiritual healing work and yeah. shadow work and, and things like that. I will be diving in once I, you know, get my new address and have my safe space to sit down and journal my heart out. Like I'm so looking forward to doing more and more work as my life goes on so I can help other people heal through more and more. Um. There's two things I want to leave you with. One is in shadow work, you know, we're life is triggering and we're always going to, people are going to mirror back to us something unhealed in ourselves. So the first step in shadow work is to identify it. So you have to ask yourself when you're triggered, what kind of person would do that? You get the quality, right? We've talking about your boyfriend. He's emotionally unavailable. Okay. Now own it. Step two, own it. So identify it, now own it. Okay, I am that. I'm emotionally unavailable to myself. Maybe not to others. Maybe I'm totally available and everything to them. But to me, no, I minimize my feelings. I Because in survival, when you were little, you had to, yeah. to survive. So you're still in survival at some level. You're still minimizing, you know, what you were, what you're feeling and not really listening. And I, I see that I see the proof in it in that I haven't in the entirety of our relationship, I've stopped reading and journaling and doing the inner healing work the way that I used to. And the way that I know I have this like, like the it must be the the inner child and in me saying like, hey, you haven't journaled in a while or mm -hmm. hey, the way that you're feeling right now might be really helpful to journal that out. Mm -hmm. And I shush her and yeah. I on with my day. Yeah. yeah, that's that's abandonment right there. Self-abandonment or orphaning yourself. So then step two, you own it. You come to a place, okay, I've, I'm doing that to myself. Then step three, I want to embrace it. I want to embrace the part of myself that feels like she doesn't have the capacity. Maybe she's weak. I need to embrace my weak little child that is that too much is going on and it's scary. And so she's clinging to this relationship for some sense of safety. And I'm an adult now, but I'm acting like an adult child, right? I'm 30 acting three, <laughs> you know, it's, and we do that. And so I come to reconciliation with that little girl and I step in to being a loving adult. And I say, Hey, I'm here. I know you told me to journal sweet girl and i know that you know what is this relationship reminding you of of our childhood you know i'm here i know it's scary to take this next step into the unknown and get our own place but i'm here for you i love you yeah it's like i'm here with you now you have to reparent her 
Yeah. Because your mom and dad didn't get, do a good job. You've got to learn to be that loving, strong adult to her. And so you come back home, you reconcile with yourself. I'm so sorry. I love you so much. Please forgive me. I'm here. I'm going to listen to you. We're back. on. And you don't go. You mentioned a word earlier, like regression. I don't say you regressed. You're just on a path and you deviate the path for a while. And then you're like, oh, where am I? I'm lost again. Oh, let's get back to the path. Yeah. You didn't go backwards. You just kind of went off to the side. Yes. And then you come back and we do that. It's constant, you know, throughout life. We kind of go off. Oh, I'm good. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, wait, wait, I'm in the, I'm in the desert again. Let me get back. You know, it's so interesting that I've used some of these phrases to um, teach at the outpatient treatment facility that I worked at for a while. I've taught clients. I've been able to help and have these conversations with people in something that they've been processing through. But now that this has been coming up in me, it's so crazy how unconscious it truly is because I've been feeling these emotions of like shame and like I I recognize that I've abandoned myself and it's frustrating. And then I'm also like, I've taught this, you know, it's, it kind of reminds me of like when therapists need therapists, you know, it's like we all. Yeah, know. heal or heal thyself. We teach what we most need to learn. So if something's coming through you, it's because you need to hear it. Yeah. So a lot of times when I'm teaching, I get really focused on one aspect of my teaching. I created this emotional healing system. So I'll pull in one area of the system and I'm like kind of aware, like, wow, I've really been teaching on, say, reparenting or envisioning or, you know, um, forgiveness or, you know, some aspect of the teaching shadow. And then I'm like, oh, because I need to hear it. Yeah. So that's all that's happening, you know, and I wanted to say, too, about codependency. You know, Melody Beattie's book was groundbreaking, but it was also a little confusing. And I had a wonderful teacher who really simplified codependency. And she said, when two dependent people get together, they create a codependent relationship. Okay. And and there there's two roles. There's a caretaker and a taker. Caretakers operate from a core false belief, the operating system of the computer, that to be a good person, I must give up myself if someone else is suffering or someone else needs me. If I do something that hurts them with no intent to hurt them and they're hurt, it's my fault. I'm bad. I'm wrong. So caretakers really are doormats or people pleasers. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they'll often grow into superiority. Because they'll seek to to find people who are broken and let me fix them to make myself feel better. So they're kind of selfish too. It turns into selfishness. So caretakers, you know, live from this kind of martyrdom. Then takers are the addicts usually, right? They're the people who believe they can't take care of themselves. They need someone else. They blame everybody. They're a victim. Poor me. Um, you know, so takers believe that you're responsible for their feelings or other people and, and, you know, in to get out of that and create a co-committed relationship requires people conscious loving by Gay and Kathleen Hendricks is a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. If you haven't read it, what is conscious loving. Okay. And read it so you can understand the, to spot what kind of relationship and your mechanisms of how you adapted as a child. Mm. And then, you know, so that you get into a relationship and you say, here are the six co-commitments. Are you willing to make these with me? Right up front, you know, read the book because I want to be in a co-committed relationship. And they're like committed to each other's growth, committed to your own growth, committed to um, 
being completely, you know, the truth is sexy, very vulnerable and open about your feelings. When you said this, I noticed my heart raced and, you know, I told myself a story that you're going to leave me and, you know, you let them know everything. And then what was your intent? And then they can come and say, oh gosh, that wasn't my intent. Or, you know, you start to have these deeper, more intimate relationships. Um, Yeah. Co-commitment commitment versus codependent. But you know, probably the universe is just saying to you, like, hey, you know, it's time to hunker down and go to your next level so that that next partner will mirror you, this new you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. I think it's it was uh it's been um just like anything in life, you know, it's like been a really, really interesting healing journey. And I think it's like a clear, it's a clear ending and a clear new beginning that is a gift right now that I can see like what I get to let go right now and what is serving me and what I want to continue to like carry forward into my future. And I just think, um, you know, reading Wise Little One and just seeing how much your upbringing mirrors mine and my little sisters, I think that is going to be a healing journey in and of itself. And I'm I'm so excited for the audience to, um, you know, it's the link is going to be down below so to get a Perfect. copy of wise little one and start to do some of this inner healing. You've, you've dropped so many incredible texts and spiritual leaders and people that you've learned from. So I'm excited to just refer back to this episode anytime that I need my next, you know, my next guide. So thank you, Mariah, for having me. It's been wonderful talking with you. It's been really wonderful getting to know you. And I feel like, um, you've helped me find some peace the way that I just didn't even expect from this call today. So I appreciate that. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for everything. Buck Small Talk is produced in partnership with Be Easy Marketing. It would mean so much if you took the time right now to follow the pod and give a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'll see you guys here next week for another Big Talk topic. Until then, let's keep moving forward.